Let's bow together and pray. That on this Palm and Passion Sunday 2014, O God, a new word from your spirit might speak to us individually and corporately and allow us to hear and embody the power and the purpose of the gospel this day. So, O God, amidst the singing of songs, the reading of scripture, the delivery of a sermon, the response that we make, may we integrate and apply that which you would give us this day as we come to worship you. We do worship you, O God. And so together, we join with the great host of those around the globe who pray the prayer that Jesus taught, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. There's something wonderfully sweet and traditional about Palm Sunday. I assume it's because the kids are with us, at least for the first part of the service, when they line the center aisle and play whack a pastor with the palm branches. It's a sweet day. And yet, if you're here for the first time, you may not know what it bodes, but the rest of us, we know. We were here last week, and we heard the disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, we can't go to Bethany. The religious leaders want to kill you. They want to stone you. We heard after Lazarus was raised from the tomb, from that point, John writes, the religious leaders began to plot about killing Jesus. And so, despite the sweetness of Palm Sunday, we see Jesus riding head first into the fray, knowing full well its outcome. An outcome of violence belying the need for control and of a hatred that is born of fear. Jesus, in riding in on a donkey, clearly identifies himself as a rival king to Herod and Pilate and Caesar. But he comes preaching about a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of love and forgiveness, a, a kingdom of reconciliation. And so when he's arrested, he reminds his disciples, don't you realize if I wanted... If this was the way it was to go, I could call 12 legions of angels. 5,000 in a legion, that's 60,000. I could call them all down. and They would take care of this mess. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And therefore, put your sword back in its sheath. For those who live by the sword will die by the sword. It's, it's all so dramatic. So heroic, so, so romantic, until we consider, what does this mean? We rehearse this drama every year on the Sunday before Easter, 
But what does it mean? Not just then, but now, here, with you and with me. If the gospel of Jesus is all merely prelude, if if Palm Sunday and all the teachings of Jesus are merely prelude in order to introduce Jesus, who's going to die on the cross to save us from our sins, so that if we worship him, then when we die, we can go to heaven. If that's all it is, then the details of Palm Sunday and of Holy Week really are kind of an irrelevant stage prop. But, if the teachings of Jesus throughout his ministry and especially on this Palm Sunday, are his way of showing us what he meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me. If the disciples are called to follow him and not just worship him, then these stories can be for us a model for how we are to live and how we are to appropriate and live into this gospel that we've been given by grace. The truth of the matter is, while there aren't any groups waiting outside to kill us as a church, let's recognize, as Bill Wilson says, we are facing giants. If we refuse to allow religion to be categorized into some small uh, segment of, of our culture, but recognize that this faith, this gospel that we live, is really about everything. Everything. About politics and economics and race relations and every dimension of who we are as a people. Then we've got big challenges. The little fights we have between Christians or between religious groups, those pale in comparison to the big challenges that we as church, we as congregation, we as people of faith, we who are called to this work of love have in front of us. For when you, when you cross the hegemony of dominant culture, let's not be, let's not be naive. There is a backlash When you expose the hypocrisy, whether our own or others, there is a negative reaction. When we question priorities, our our priorities or our culture's priorities, there's going to be dissent. When we challenge prejudices and stand up to bullyings and resist the demand for conformity, there's the possibility, the very real possibility, that metaphorically or literally we could be crucified. Which is why most people are fans of Jesus, but they're not necessarily followers of Jesus. They like Jesus in theory. They don't like him in reality. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, said, O Lord Jesus Christ, save us from the error of wishing to admire you instead of being willing to follow you and resemble you. Reinhold Niebuhr said, we are in danger of being committed to the cross in principle, but escaping it in practice. He went on to say that if a gospel is preached that has no opposition, it's not the gospel that results in a cross. And we remind ourselves every Sunday... 
that this faith that we embody, that we hold so dear, is a faith that begins with the cross. And so when we process every Sunday, we do so behind the cross, not just as formality, but as reminder and as witness to what this gospel is. Hey, we don't have to go looking for trouble. The gospel hooks people's fears, and there's always going to be a response. We live in a world that fears that love is too permissive, too forgiving. And so this week, when the news report came out that a new injection had been developed that might save the lives of heroin addicts who overdosed, who had overdosed, it was met with a kind of derision by some. Well, you're just making it easier for these heroin addicts to just keep doing what they do. Really? We live in a world where the fear of love being too forgiving causes a great deal of backlash. We live in a world that fears for its safety, that says that this world is way too violent. And so here in our own city of Louisville, moms are being encouraged to pack the gun along with packing some snacks when they go to take their children to the park. We live in a culture that fears not having enough. Everyone's got to get their own and keep their own and preserve their own. And so this week we read that Fruit of the Loom, the undergarment factory, is going to move its production from Jamestown, Kentucky to the Honduras, where victims of poverty are much willing to work for less, in fact, almost nothing. Meanwhile, the CEOs of these corporations and their stockholders, you and me, we continue to rake in more and more because we're afraid there's not enough. There's fear among clergy, among pastors. You know that nationally church attendance is in decline. Some 17% of of, uh, the population go to church these days. There's the temptation. Hey, be more user-friendly. Preach a happier gospel. Preach one about individual conversion and make people feel assured. We live in a world that's filled with fear from one side to the other, not to mention each one of our personal fears, the fears that I'm not good enough, that I'm not smart enough, I'm not holy enough or brave enough or productive enough. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. And into this culture of fear, 2,000 years ago and today, Jesus enters Jerusalem bravely and confidently. He knows what the writer of 1 John will say, that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out that fear and makes it possible for new things to be born. He knows that for us to find our way again, the only way, the only way, it's the way of the cross his cross, and our cross. The one who bore the cross said to you and me, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your way to stand in the face of fear and bear the love into the world. I went for many decades without hearing this message in the gospel. 
I was so ingrained into the majority thinking within Christianity that said Jesus died on the cross for me, so I need to keep my eyes glued on Jesus. I need to feel guilty all the time because Jesus died for me and what I did and his blood was shed for me. Let me be very clear. I am in no way minimizing my sin and each one of our individual sins. Hey, if you had to work with the staff I do, you'd know all about sin. (laughs) I hear that, amen. I, I, I completely believe, as Paul does, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. I believe what the writer of 1 John said. That if we say we don't have sin, we lie. We lie. The truth's not in us. So I'm not minimizing our individual sin, but I'm saying this. If Holy Week is only about guilt over our individual sin, well, let's just say it gets complicated. It becomes at some point unhelpful because it misses the larger point. I've shared with the congregation over the last six months some of the stresses and uh, revelations within my own extended family that relate to physical and sexual abuse of children. And so I've become interested in reading the literature that's out there on this subject. Someone gave me this week a book by an evangelical press, a book entitled The Wounded Heart that was said to deal with this issue of physical and sexual abuse of children. But what I noticed about 20 pages in is this, that the author seemed to be on a kind of short tether, that he could only talk for so long before he had to come back to the traditional evangelical individualistic sin quotient in our lives. Here's but one example. The deepest damage that we can experience this is a quote, is not what someone's done to me, but it's what I've done to the creator of the universe. Damage done through abuse is awful and heinous, but it's minor compared to the dynamics that distort my relationship with God. Can you hear how that would confuse and, and set off to the side this enormous reality of sin that's part of the systems in which you and I live. And so I want to propose a different angle. What if we could begin to think about Jesus dying for our sins, not just those sins that are committed by each one of us individually, though certainly that, but also those sins that are committed to us, against us, and around us. The systemic sin that affects everything. We're not just talking religion here. We're talking life. Every dimension of life. So that when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what he's saying is this, that Jesus in his life, in his body, in his cross, exposes and reveals all of the dark and destructive 
and demonic places that are around and in and through this world. All the greed, all the fear, all the self-centered corruption. And by exposing them, he disempowers them and redeems us and delivers us from them. Oscar Romero, the great Central American archbishop, before he was assassinated, said this. It's so important that as we pay homage at this time of the year to the body of Christ, let's also recognize that there are so many outrages to his body and blood among us. He was talking to the peasants of Central America in El Salvador. Romero said to join this homage of our faith to the presence of the body and blood of Christ, which we shed, we shed, with all of the blood and corpses that are piled up here in our land and throughout the world. Many of you are old enough to remember back in the mid-1980s when the artist Edwina Sandys created a sculpture of Jesus upon the cross. What was distinct about this particular sculpture was that Christ was depicted as a woman. A woman who had been tortured and was hanging on the cross. She named the sculptor, sculpture Christa. Now, she was not denying in any way that Jesus is a male. That wasn't the point at all. The point was this. That Jesus identifies with crucified people everywhere. That his death on the cross exposes and somehow disempowers the evil that has been done. And in that way gives us the capacity to find deliverance. Well, when the statue was unveiled in New York City in Upper Manhattan's Cathedral of St. John the Divine, there was a loud outcry, a protest. Not a protest against the abuse of women, but rather a protest that Jesus was depicted as a woman. One theologian said the suffering body of Christ includes the raped and denigrated bodies of women. All over the world, desperately poor women are today Christ disfigured in his passion. It's a suffering that should not be. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the face of the world's many fears, Jesus bravely, confidently enters into Jerusalem, the the crossroads of the way, not to be a martyr, not to play a trick on the devil, but to embody God's transforming love and to make that love present and available and powerful in every place that it is absent. And so, 
as his followers, not just his fans, but his followers. He says to us in so many dimensions of our life, put away the sword. Put it away. For those who will live by the sword will die by the sword. And now come, let me help you find your way again. To the glory of God, now and always. Amen. Let's pray together. Grant sacred strength and spirit sight that we might find our way again and be for you, O God, your body and blood in this world today and always. May the healing of the nations begun by Jesus Christ continue to work its healing miracle even through us, even in us, this day. So, forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive and bless and heal those trespasses all over the world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.